0: Well, this week I was, uh, was reading an interaction in an online motorcycle discussion forum, so it was some pretty high-end philosophical reading on my part. Um, but, but, uh, but, but I was reading this, and in the midst of this interaction, a motorcycle company, an Italian company called Aprilia, they make amazing bikes, uh, but, but they posted this picture of one of their bikes jumping over this huge sand dune, and, and immediately underneath the photo, somebody had right away commented, no dust, nice Photoshop, no dust, nice Photoshop. Um, so, 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 because you couldn't see the dust or the sand blowing or anything back from the bike, they assumed it was a fake photo, a kind of publicity stunt on the part of Aprilia, uh, which very much could have been the case, except that it must have worked up whoever's in charge of Aprilia's social media, because immediately following that comment, there was a whole slew of more of, of additional pictures that were posted showing how this, this one picture had taken place in the midst of a really big race, and, and it was, in fact, a legitimate, a legitimate photo. So it worked somebody up, and they got on it right away, and based on all the different angles you could see where all these different pictures that were provided, obviously it was, it was, it was, it was a real, the real thing, what was going on. Um, but in all that, what, what was ultimately convincing was seeing uh, the picture from all these different angles. The same incident taking place—I don't know—they had four or five different different angles on this on this jump that had taken place, which was quite magnificent. And uh, j- just that fact of the different angles being present—that illustrates uh, the reality that that seeing things from different angles always brings greater clarity. Uh, whether it's a different perspective that helps us understand somebody's point in a conversation, or whether it's, it's maybe a new piece of information that helps to fill in some blanks on a work project or whatever it may be. Uh, we know that seeing things from different angles helps us uh, to understand things more accurately. And that principle is something that we find uh, playing out in our passage this morning. Because all through these chapters in 1 Samuel that we've been studying... Uh, a main burden of the text has been to show us that in the people's choice of King Saul, they've not only rejected the Lord as the one they're supremely trusting in, but, but in Saul, they'd actually fixed their hope on something, or in this case, on someone who couldn't really satisfy. They thought Saul would be the answer. Saul proves himself again and again and again to not be the answer the people are looking for. And, and it's Saul's inability to ultimately be the deliverer that the people needed that's highlighted so many times in these passages that we've been looking at. Uh, Saul can't bring the relief. He's not the one who's worthy of the people's ultimate hope. In fact, Saul, as we've seen, he actually moves the people further and further from a place of godly flourishing uh, to a point of being cornered by the Philistines. Death is nearly upon them. Things are going in a bad direction. And and as the narrator is making this point about about Saul's deficiency, the deficiency of those things we might hope in other than the living God, as the narrator is making this point, he's not just stating this fact outright, but he's showing us how this can take place from a number of different angles. Because, Because as we know, with a variety of angles, greater clarity can be provided for us. And, and, so, and so in our passage today, we're showing another way in which Saul ultimately is not the help the people needed, and that, and that Saul places this demoralizing demand on his troops at the beginning of this section, and, and the unique element here is that he places this demoralizing demand on his troops during a battle in which victory has already been secured. So, so the pressure from the Philistine forces, if you remember where we've been in the last couple of weeks, the pressure from the Philistine forces has been very intense as the story has unfolded. But now we know from the first part of verse 23, which is where we ended last week, we know that, that while the Philistines, by all human standards, were about to totally annihilate Saul and his army, we're told that the Lord delivered Israel that day. So that's the good news. Deliverance has come. God brought uh, the Philistines to this place of panicked retreat and all of that. But now it's in the context of that deliverance that Saul places this very heavy burden upon his, upon his men. That They're not relieved and free after the Lord's victory over the Philistines. But they should have been, but they're not. Instead, even though the victory's been won, they're weighed down by this demand of Saul. And as we get into this text, uh, we see that while Saul has proved to be hopeless for a lot of reasons... Uh, when it comes to having our understanding filled out with regard to the way false hopes can actually be packaged and presented to us in our lives of faith, uh, especially as we're seeking out to live our life following Jesus Uh, carefully and faithfully and not burdened by unnecessary obligations that draw us away from Christ, but instead uh, sourcing our hope and rest in what Jesus calls us to, uh, there is a help that this text has and that we're reminded of the significance of, of trouble that can come when these undue, ungodly, unscriptural burdens can be laid upon us. Um, and, and maybe that's something that you've experienced in your Christian life. Probably at, at some point or another, we've all uh, run into this to a certain degree. Uh, you, you, you come to Christ and you find relief. There's a sense in which knowing Jesus brings us uh, a great relief from our burdens. Those burdens are lifted. Maybe, maybe uh, you've, you've found finally that peace with guilt that's otherwise been gnawing at you. Shame is gone, those kinds of things. But then that one particular conversation takes place. Or you hear that one podcast, or you read that one book, and, and, and there in the context of God's kind deliverance, instead of feeling the burden lifted by Jesus' grace to you, instead you find yourself pressed down again. This kind of thing can happen. And in a passage like this helps bring some gospel relief. It helps relieve those kinds of things that can show up in our Christian life. And so, and so we're going to get right to the text here. Um, again, it'll, it'll help if you follow along while we study. There's always a lot of narrative geography to cover now, when we're going through a passage like this and, and we can't say something about everything, but we're going to try and move it a good clip here along the main line. Um, so, what we're going to do, if, we, if you like a, a title for the whole thing, here we have Saul's demoralizing demand, which is made in the context of God's deliverance. A demoralizing demand made in the context of God's deliverance. That sets up the framework for this passage. And, and so the first thing we'll do in verses 23b... Uh, through verse 32, is we're going to think about this, this demoralizing demand that's made. Um, we know what it is in general to identify with, with, with being demoralized. Uh, maybe we thought things were going really great. I can, I can remember we're talking about motorcycles already. Might as well do it twice. When I was younger working at a motorcycle shop, I was doing finance for them, and I, I remember uh, having the sense that I finally got the hang of all this paperwork stuff. I was doing really well. Um, you know, all, all, the, all the I's dotted and T's crossed for all the finance contracts and everything like that. And then I got a phone call from MAPS Credit Union, who was one of our main lenders that we used, and the lady, who was very nice, proceeded to tell me I was doing everything wrong. I, I'd managed to do everything wrong with the contracts significantly. I had to redo a whole bunch of them, and, and I went from feeling wonderful about the work I was doing to realizing that I'd been making a total mess of it. It's very demoralizing. The energy is gone. We can identify with experiences like that. And what's happening here is the troops are brought down and this demoralizing event is taking place. So, we start out there where we read that the battle extended beyond Beth Haven. So that ties to what we, where we left off last time with, with, with Jonathan's active faith and the Lord working through Jonathan's active faith. You remember, to, to ultimately send the Philistines uh, into, into this kind of panicked retreat. So that's what was going on last time. And then as a result... Uh, instead of being uh, soundly defeated by, by the Philistine force, which was vastly superior, instead, the Lord's given Israel victory, they're driving the Philistines back, they're, they're scattering, uh, like we saw in, in the early part of the chapter. And, and then in this context, we read the beginning of our passage, verse 24, the men of Israel were worn out that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. And this oath involved, if you see it there in the text, cursing anyone, who eats before evening, and so none of Saul's troops were eating. They're in the heat of battle. Actually, based on the names of places uh, we have down in verse 31, they actually were pursuing the Philistines over the course of a 14-mile battle. So it was a a long pursuit that they'd been engaged in, but because of this oath Saul had placed on them, the troops aren't eating. Now, Now, we have to think carefully about this for a moment because there are a couple of key pieces that we need to have in our mind in order to to make sense of what's going on here. And so you're going to have to put on your technical Bible study hat for just a second. And and we we need to work through some of this. Um, Partly because if if you're reading from the ESV translation, and I know some of you are, verse 24 says something like, The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid laid an oath on the people not to eat. So he had. That makes it sound like, like the hard-pressed condition of the troops was the reason that Saul put them under oath not to eat. So we might think it's something maybe like Saul's calling for a fast because the people are weak and, and he's hoping for the mercy of God. So he's calling for a fast because this weakness is existing. But that's not quite what's... In fact, that's not at all what's going on. We see it more in the CSB, which is the translation we read from this morning. It reads a little different. The men of Israel were worn out that day for Saul had placed this oath on the troops. You see, there's, a, there's an opposite implication there. In that translation, the hard-pressed or worn-out condition of the troops is because of Saul's oath. It, it's not Saul putting them under oath because they're worn out, like the ESV implies. It's Saul putting them un, under oath not to eat, and that's what makes them worn out. There, there's a, a Hebrew a conjunction there in Hebrew that could go either way, but, but it's going to go this way, and I'll give you another clue as to why we know that. Um, Saul's soldiers are pressed because he's put them under oath, and, and, and the verb that the, that the writer uses there where it talks about how Saul placed them under oath, it's actually the verb connected to the Hebrew word uh, for playing the fool. So, so Saul's doing something silly in this, in this action. It's, it's a point of folly in Saul's life. So he, even in the narrator's initial comments, he's connecting his reader to the fact that Saul is doing a foolish thing here, and it's affecting his troops. And and so so when we put things together, we see that that, that this is being emphasized in a significant way where the men of Israel, or the troops of Israel, are hard-pressed because Saul's put them under oath. They're not eating while they fight this long 14-mile battle, so they're described as worn out. Which brings us to another connection that we need to make, because this worn-out phrase here, or hard-pressed, depending on what you're reading from, this hard-pressed description here is the exact same description given back up in chapter 13, verse 6, where the initial threat of the Philistines was realized, and if you remember back then, we read something like, the men of Israel saw they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation, say more, they were hard-pressed back then, so they hid in caves and thickets and so on. But that phraseology back in chapter 13, verse 6, that was related directly to the fact that the Philistines were coming in and were going to totally crush them. So the men were hard-pressed back in chapter 13, verse 6 because of this. They were weighed down with the burden of the fact they're going to get annihilated by this huge army. Now the Lord has brought them victory. The Lord brought them victory on that day, and what would we expect? Extraordinary rejoicing. That the burden has been lifted. They're no longer subject to the threat of this Philistine army. This should be the happiest day that they've ever had, except what do we read here? The exact same thing is still going on. They're hard-pressed again. And why are they hard-pressed now? It doesn't seem right that they should be. But they're hard-pressed now, not because of the Philistine threat. They've been delivered from their enemies. They're hard-pressed now because Saul has made this demoralizing demand. Don't eat until the end of the day. This isn't a, a directive found in Deuteronomy or something like that about how to engage in battle when you're appealing to the Lord for His mercy or something like that. This is just straight out of Saul's own imagination. This is Saul abusing his power. Don't, don't, don't eat. He's making them take an oath. In fact, there's a little clue that Saul, that Saul is very self-absorbed with this directive and that he says there in verse 24, No one eats until I've taken revenge on my enemies. Well, you know, whatever, Saul because he's arrogantly made this whole thing about him, even though the Lord is obviously the victorious one. And what has Saul been doing? Well, Saul's been spending most of this battle under the pomegranate tree, denying that all this is going on. This This isn't really Saul's deal, but Saul imposes this on his men. He makes this all about him. If you eat before the end of the day, you're cursed, so the men don't eat. But there's a problem, because Jonathan... You remember, Jonathan wasn't around when Saul's been addressing his men because Jonathan is the one with his armor-bearer who had snuck out and started this whole uh, re-engagement with the Philistines we saw last week. So Jonathan didn't know about this directive that his dad set down. And in verse 25, uh, presumably a ways into chasing the retreating Philistines, now Jonathan and the rest of the soldiers, there are back together. Uh, they're in the forest now. Uh, they're, they're pursuing the Philistines, and there's honey on the ground. Now, we're told none of the troops ate the honey, because of this oath that Saul had placed them under. They're all worried about this. Jonathan, however, he doesn't know anything about it. So what does he do? He eats the honey. He dips his staff into the honey and he eats some. And then in verse 27 we read, When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. So, so literally the text says, When he ate the honey, his eyes saw. Or his eyes brightened. We can identify with that. We're starving after a long day. We have a good meal and all of a sudden the world's a brighter place. Right? Of course, it's logical. He was hungry. He'd had a long day of battle. The honey was refreshing and nourishing for him. He eats. But as he does, one of the troops immediately gets on Jonathan in verse 28. And he says to him, whoa, whoa. your father made the troops solemnly swear that the man who eats food before the day's end is cursed. And the troops are exhausted. He says, now listen, Jonathan. What you're doing, we're all working really hard to keep this oath your dad put us under. We're working really hard to uphold this demand your dad put on us. We're struggling here, and you just ate a bunch of honey. To which Jonathan replies, my father's brought trouble to the land. Jonathan actually uses a word that shows up uh, in, in the story of a man named Achan back in the book of Joshua. Where because of Achan's actions, the people were defeated. And Achan is described as a troubler of Israel. Same kind of phraseology here. Jonathan now describes his dad, King Saul, in the exact same way. And Jonathan drives this point home with some very refreshing logic in verse 29. Look how I have renewed energy. Look how my eyes are brightened, literally is what he says. Because I've tasted some honey. Verse 30, think about how much better we would have done fighting if we'd been free to eat our cliff bars today. So the demand is totally ridiculous, Jonathan is saying. It makes no sense. And even the tie to the Achan story with the language Jonathan uses help us recognize that Jonathan is making a negative moral judgment on what his dad has done. This is not a righteous thing. And then up through verse 32, we read that this battle continues. The Israelites, they keep fighting back the Philistines. And by the end of the day... They rushed to the plunder, they're starving, so they rushed to the plunder, the day's over, so they're still keeping this oath, the day comes to an end, now they can eat, they rush to the plunder, slaughter the Philistine animals on the ground, and they ate meat with the blood still in it, we're told. Which, which is actually troubling because, because not, not, it's not just that the soldiers kept Saul's oath, that is significant, but in the end what we see is in keeping Saul's oath, they actually find themselves in a placing of disregarding the law of God, which does say in the Old Covenant you don't eat animals with blood in it. That's Leviticus 17, uh, 10 to 12, and a, and a few other places, which we'll get to here in a moment. But, but, but we can put together what's going on. Saul who the prophet Samuel, you remember, has said doesn't pay attention to the word of the Lord. That's Saul's problem. Saul instead has placed his own heavy word on the people. And in the context of the Lord's deliverance, instead of the people being free to to press forward in the full strength of this victory the Lord's given them, instead the people of Israel are still pressed down, even driven to sin by the end of the day because Saul imposed this troubling directive on them. So the whole day is marked by the glorious victory of God. That's that's verse 23. The Lord saved Israel that day. It's salvation day. But instead of this being a day of felt relief and celebration, it continues to be a day of deeply damaging burdens, ending in sin because of Saul's demoralizing demand. So, let's bridge the gap here. What is this narrative helping us to understand? Well, you're probably putting pieces together here, but we're being given another angle on how false hope actually can, can show up in our lives and be damaging. We're being helped to see through this figure of Saul here, uh, we're helped to see that, that even in the context of God's delivering power, there can be burdens laid upon us that leave us basically just as troubled as we were before. The troops in chapter 13, verse 6 were hard-pressed because of the Philistine threat. The Lord delivered them. But now they're still hard-pressed because Saul weighs them down with this personal requirement he imposes on them. You must do this. And as we think on what's going on, we can see this narrative is illustrating a very important danger to be aware of in our lives of faith. In fact, this is something Jesus addresses with some regularity in his earthly ministry. Jesus speaks about the Pharisees of his day, and he says this, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. Isn't that what Saul's done to his troops? Paul, he speaks about this too, especially in his letter to the Colossians. He tells the believers at Colossae that there are some teachers who are coming in and saying, you need to add all this stuff to the supremacy of Jesus and his salvation. In Colossians 2, Paul Paul directly talks about people coming in and saying things like, you can't eat that if you really want to be a good Christian. Imposing all this extra stuff. And, and so this is something we just need to be watchful of as we follow Jesus. As, as followers of Jesus, the greatest deliverance we could ever imagine has been fully and completely applied to us. The victory has been won by Christ full stop. So through Jesus, we're transferred from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. Our, our great threat isn't the Philistines. We know that. Our great threat is the burden of our transgressions against God, which separate us from God, our violations of God and His good way, which bright, rightly bring us to this point of deserving condemnation and death. All of those kinds of things. Those sins are paid by Jesus on the cross for all who trust in Him. In that sense, Jesus actually is the better Jonathan. Who, if you remember last week, uh, Jesus, he's actually crossed a more rocky and treacherous valley than Jonathan did to bring us deliverance. He passed through, Jesus passed through death itself, taking our sin upon him, and and he brought us life. Deliverance is ours, we're freed. That's the glory of the gospel, and and we can experience that. Um, However... We can get through all of that, the power for holy living that we have, the deliverance through Jesus, the persevering grace. It's all of Christ in our life. And then somebody comes along with their Saul-like antics, and they say something like, oh, yes, deliverance is there. Isn't it wonderful how you've been delivered on on this wonderful day of salvation? Now we just need to talk to you about some things if you're really going to be part of the kingdom of God. So let's start in with this. First of all, you need to make sure that you only vote aligned with this political party. And then let's think about a few other things. Maybe uh, you need to make sure you have this certain view of medicine. Right? Or, 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 you know, if, if you don't get up and read your Bible for 32 minutes and pray for 33 minutes every morning, and if you don't do that before 6 a.m., you know, you're really going to end up in a world of hurt as a Christian believer. And on and on and on these things go. Um, they, 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 they find us in this point of being disparaging. Because all of a sudden, instead of reveling in our deliverance, we're cast down under this huge burden of extra-biblical requirements, which doesn't bring us joy and deliverance, but it brings us a great deal of weariness and religion. There's a whole bunch of extra burdens, ready, set, go. Now, Now, of course, and you know this, but this is not to say that obedience, and even deeply costly and sacrificial obedience, is not attached to the Christian life. That's not what we're saying. Jesus calls us to the ultimate obedience, death to self and living for Him, He says. He actually says that love for Him is defined by obeying His commands. Somebody says, I love Jesus, and they don't obey the scriptural truth. We well, can actually call into question how much they really love Jesus because somebody who loves Him and has been saved by Him wants to respond to that kindness by living the life He calls us to live. So, so, so obedience and the grace of Christ go hand in hand. Obedience and following Jesus are not separated. However, extra demands, demands like Saul's oath here, which have no basis in God's revealed truth, but simply flow out of the deformed religious ideas Ideas of this person those extra demands are not the path to holiness they're not the path to relief they're the path to weariness ultimately like we see here they don't leave us delivered from sin this is the great hardship of this passage they actually drive the people to commit sin by the end of the day these are heavy unchrist centered directives that drive away from life it's a path to spiritual defeat And maybe that's something that, that you've experienced as part of your Christian life. And you look to Christ and His cross and find this great relief, that moment of recognizing He's paid for all my sins. You know, I am reconciled to Him despite the darkness in my heart, despite the folly of my life. I am actually reconciled to the God who made me free and clear. Finally, my conscience is clean through Jesus. Finally, I operate in the persevering strength of another. Finally, I have peace knowing that I belong to the Good Shepherd who will never leave me or forsake me, but he embraces me with outstretched arms. All of those wonderful gospel truths that come to set home in our hearts and bring us extraordinary comfort, and then somebody comes and says and says something to us. Or maybe it's a book, or maybe it's a podcast, or maybe it's a bad pastor. And they come and start building the burdens again. If you're really a Christian, you have to school your kids in a certain way. If you're really a Christian, you got going to be a good Christian wife, then your home needs to look uh, this, this exact way. Oh, and I recently heard you don't observe Lent. Oh, we're going to need to talk about that. And the burdens, they just start piling and piling and piling in the context of deliverance, demoralizing demands start to set in and you just become a weary soldier. So these kinds of pressures come. The question is, how, how, how do we spot them and what do we do with them when we face them? How, how, how do we deal with these things? Oh, and, and while the scriptures have much to say al- along these lines, this, this passage specifically this morning does help us answer those two questions in, in, a, in a certain way. So how do we spot this kind of burden-laying person, and what do we do when this pressure comes? That's what the rest of the passage is going to work out for us. So look at verses 33 to 37. The question is, how how, how do we spot somebody or a situation where this this burden would be laid upon us? And the answer is, first of all, very often, they're recognizable or the situation is recognizable because artificial godliness is present. There's a kind of artificial godliness. So 33 to 37, if you look there, we have Saul doing a whole bunch of pious-seeming things. But with all these pious seeming things, there's a whole bunch of indicators that Saul's godliness is not remotely genuine, instead it's entirely artificial. So watch how this plays out. Verse 33, we left the troops eating meat with blood still in it. And what happens in verse 33 is that someone actually has to tell Saul the troops, they don't tell Saul the troops are doing this, they tell Saul the troops are sinning by doing this. You See that in the text? So some, some report to Saul, the troops are sinning by eating meat in this way, which again is a violation of Old Covenant law. Um, some unnamed person has to tell Saul that this sin is going on, and immediately Saul, he, he explodes, he chastises the men who are eating in this way. He sets up a stone, you know, where the meat can be prepared and cut so the blood can drain and so on. Um, and in verses 33 and 34, you have Saul uh, finally showing a whole bunch of concern about this, this blood-in-the-meat situation uh, that some random person had to tell him is actually a problem, which is kind of weird. He cares so much now, but he didn't seem to notice five minutes ago. Right? Then in verse 35, we're told Saul builds an altar to the Lord. Well, which, you know, that's something that spiritually sensitive Israelite leaders do in the context of battle. Samuel did it back in chapter 7. We have, we have Gideon doing it. David's going to do it a little later on. But here the narrator tells us that this altar thing is something Saul had never done before. Verse 35. Right? And actually, as the rest of the story unfolds, we, we never read of Saul doing it again. Right? So he builds an altar for worship, but, but it's not like he's genuinely quickened with, it, with this regular spiritual practice or something like that. And then in verse 36, Saul gets all excited to go after the Philistines in one more plunder run. And the troops seem supportive. They say, go ahead, yeah, do, do what you want. But then the priest, he has to say, wait a second, shouldn't we inquire of the Lord? Which is what the Israelite king should do before they proceed in battle. Saul's Saul's ready to to finally get get after things and fight now. He hasn't really been that ready to do it at all. But he totally neglects inquiring of the Lord as to whether this is something he should do. That's That's what the king should do. They should inquire of the Lord. But Saul doesn't even think of that. And just to punctuate Saul's artificial godliness in this whole thing, where when he does inquire of God, because the priest told him he ought to do it, when he does inquire of the Lord, what's the response? Well, the response is absolutely nothing. God does not answer him. In fact, we'll read this again later in chapter 28. God doesn't answer Saul. So so then in verses 38 and 39, Saul, as we would expect, he starts blaming others for God not answering him. Right? Notably, he connects the, the pressured sin of this situation. You, you know, we, we, we must have sinned against God because he's not answering me. Somebody else must be the problem. That's why we're not getting an answer. So he immediately connects the sin of sin in this situation with his oath that, that he's put his troops under. He's thinking, let's investigate how sin has occurred. As surely as the Lord who lives who saved Israel, he makes a nice little pious nod there. As surely as the Lord lives who saved Israel, even if it's because of my son Jonathan, he must die. And, and at that point, none of the troops say anything, because they know Saul has made this foolish oath. They know what Jonathan did, but they love Jonathan because he just brought them deliverance. They're not going to rat him out. But you do notice here what Saul is calling sin. Saul's not calling his foolish oath sin. Right? He's put this on, on the men. He's not, he's not calling that sin. He's defining sin as the transgression of his own word, not God's word, but his word. In fact, he's taking the role of prophet to himself. When he confronts Jonathan, he actually uses the same language that Samuel uses. When Samuel confronts Saul in his sin legitimately, Saul co-ops that to use himself against his son Jonathan, even though Saul's the one who's lost in the sin. He, he takes that, that role of this word is, 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 is what's being violated uh, to himself. He's very arrogant in this. So, so when all is said and done, what we have in Saul is not genuine spirituality, but we have a kind of artificial external godliness. In one sense, you could look at Saul, and it seems like there's some spiritually proper things that are that are taking place. He provides for the proper preparation of meat. You know, he builds an altar to God. He, he he wants to initiate battle with the Philistines, which he was supposed to do from the beginning. And, and he does inquire of the Lord. Those all look good from the outside, but then we start putting them together with what we know about them. You know, He provides for the proper preparation of meat, but only after his men tell him it's a sin not to. It's not like his heart was there. He built an altar to God, but it's the first time he's ever actually done that, and it's also the last time, right? He wants to initiate battle with the Philistines, but he doesn't inquire of the Lord, or he's not going to at least, inquire of the Lord before he does so. And then as he finally does inquire of the Lord, what do we read? God has nothing to say to him. There's no communion with God here. This is a man separated from the Lord. Then finally he uses the word sin. You know, that's a a proper word for, for what's going on here. But instead of recognizing the sin as his own, he calls the breaking of his own word sin. So he's got the spiritual language, but he's got it all twisted up. So, so, so you look, and there's a whole lot that might seem okay. Saul's doing spiritual stuff. Saul's using spiritual language. But then you look a little closer, and it's just a bunch of externals. Saul's not really a man with a heart turned toward God. Saul's a man with a heart turned toward Saul. He's self-serving. He's self-consumed. In fact, remember back in chapter 11, when he wouldn't kill the men who heckled him uh, when he first became king, he let them live, uh, which which seemed kind at the time. But look at Saul now. He's even willing to kill his own son now. So Saul is a man who's going in the direction of death. His godliness isn't genuine. It's artificial. It's fake. It's external. Um, Which the Apostle Paul speaks about this kind of person in 2 Timothy 3. uh, Paul speaks about those who hold to a form of godliness, a form of godliness, but ultimately deny, his, deny its power? What does Paul say? Avoid these people. Don't be around them. How do we spot the kind of person who will lay demoralizing burdens upon us? Well, one of the ways we can spot them is they're soul-like. They're external in their religious practices. A whole bunch seems to be going on, but upon closer inspection, some things are very off their heart is not really turned toward the Lord they twist up what sin really is they make decisions without concern for what God says on the matter they might practice a religious element or two there's this worship involved they build an altar so to speak but it's not that they're regular worshipers all these kinds of things help us see there's someone who might speak very authority authoritatively And they might even reference things with the right kind of spiritual language and all of those sorts of things. But in the context of my deliverance under God, I'm not going to pay attention to them because the life they live may be externally pious. However, at the end of the day, it proves to be void of truth. Which, again, is Jesus in Luke 11 as He's speaking to the Pharisees. What does He tell them? He tells them the outside of the cup is clean. You guys are doing a great job of brushing up how things look from the outside. But inside, everything is all vile and dirty. So we think through this and and we're helped in our discernment because maybe there have been burdens placed on you in your life of faith and as you reflect on those burdens in the lives of those who pressed you with those burdens, you can see that those obligations didn't actually reflect godly allegiance. They reflected a kind of faux spirituality, a kind of artificial godliness. We need to be able to see that for what it is. The scriptures give us this truth for that reason. And so then if we, can, if we can identify this, if we can see those burdens uh, for the, the demoralizing demands that they really are, and if we can develop our discernment when we're interacting with others who may place burdens like that on us, the question becomes not only a matter of, of discerning a person or group or a book or whatever that, that could do this, lay this burden on us, but we also need to sort out how to deal with it. What do we do with this when, when it does come? And that answer is actually here for us in the the last few verses, 41 to 46. We have an answer for that in this text as well where we see that relief from the burdens is found ultimately by aligning ourselves again with the Deliverer. Relief for the burdens is found in alignment with the Deliverer. Verse 41 and on, we see here how Saul goes through this process to determine who's violated his decree. This lot-casting process is worked out there. It becomes evident that it's Jonathan. And Jonathan surprisingly, Jonathan is a a humble man. He's willing to take the punishment. He says he'll die. But the people, instead of remaining aligned with Saul, which they have been all the way throughout, have you noticed that? Sure, Saul, let's do it. Sure, Saul, let's do it. Sure, Saul. There are a bunch of yes men around Saul. All of a sudden, they turn on Saul and they align with Jonathan. Must Jonathan die? Verse 45, he accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. It's a question that they ask, but then they move far past a question and they take an oath of their own. As the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. It's quite the stand to take in front of your king. Total insubordination on their part. We're not going to pay any attention to you. None of that is going to happen because this is the one who saved us. So through Jonathan's faithful efforts, the Lord saved the people from the Philistines. That's the first part of the chapter. And instead of remaining under the thumb of Saul and his debilitating commands, even now, the severe determination to put Jonathan to death. Instead of aligning with Saul, the people align with their Deliverer. In fact, the text says there, if you see it, that they redeemed Jonathan, which, which is a fairly loaded word, that word redeemed. Uh, but in this case, it actually brings us back to Leviticus 27, where we read that, that under God's law, a person who's bound by an oath can be purchased in terms of their being freed from that oath. So that seems to be what's happening here. Whatever the full picture is, the people do what is necessary, even what's necessary in a costly way, to set Jonathan apart now as as the one they're committed to, not Saul. They're turning their their affection and their attention to him, which which is such a wonderful picture. Because the people burdened by Saul find freedom as they align with the one who brought them deliverance. Which, of course, is right at the center of the gospel. We, we, We could be worn out. We can be hard-pressed in our Christian life because there have been so many times we've got the, you must add this kind of message. But the way through that is not to give up on obeying what's clear in the Word of God. It's not to quit using words like sin. It's not to stop genuine and biblical expressions of worship and so on. Isn't that the temptation? The burden just gets too heavy, and so what do we do? Well, it's all talking about sin. I'm just not going to talk about sin at all in my life. Oh, he's got this full worship. I'm just not going to worship at all in my life. There's this step back from actual engagement with God. And we have done so or people do so with the permission uh, that, that comes through the fact that this has been, in a sense, that abuse in their life. This hasn't been a righteous expression of care for them. And so they decide to chuck the whole thing. But that's not what this text calls us to do. We don't chuck the whole thing. The way through is not to give up on obeying what's clear in God's Word. It's not to quit using words like sin. It's not to stop genuine and biblical expressions of worship and so on. The way through those sorts of seasons is to realign ourselves with the better deliverer. Is to look to Jesus again. The way through is to see Jesus work out what it means to know Him and trust Him. I'm secure in Him. He dwells in me. The burdensome demands, they come, and we need to retune our hearts by these truths again and again. So we can use this world. Hymns can be so helpful. And we have hymns like, all to Jesus I surrender. Not all to your religious program I surrender. None of that. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Thee I freely give. I will ever love and trust You in Your presence. Daily life. Demoralizing demands can come, but they fall away with a fresh gaze at Christ. And, the, and there's great practicality to be worked out here. What does it mean to gaze at Christ in a fresh way again? Well, in a very, in a very simple sense, it can mean something as as, as straightforward as opening up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and saying, Oh Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to see what it means to know Jesus, why he came, what it means to follow him, what he's done for me. We come and we just renew ourselves in the truth of what it really means to belong to Jesus. And all of a sudden, those demands that would otherwise weigh us down are lifted as we come to the one who is not a burden imposer, but who is our burden bearer. And so from a text like this, we can actually find a great deal of delivering relief. We find delivering relief instead of debilitating demands as we're reminded that there is one with whom we can align. There is one worthy of our allegiance. And it's not the one who burdens us down, but the one who ultimately brings us relief. And so we're thankful for truth that reminds us of these things. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would be encouraged by this truth that Uh, Our own alignment to Christ can be renewed, uh, not in a way that falls away from a legitimate response of obedience to Jesus, but in a way that aligns with the life he calls us to live and and puts away all things that are contrary to the life that you call us to. We know, Lord Jesus, it is so easy to be burdened down by extras, by externals, to do stuff and take comfort simply in doing stuff. But at the same time, uh, we know there's no life there. And we pray that we would be renewed in a view of who you are and what it means to follow you, given all that you've done for us. We ask this uh, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.